Welcome back to the All About Audiology podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Lilach Saperstein, and on this show, we talk about how audiology interacts with your life, how it matters to you, why you should care about any of these, you know, anatomy and all these technical things. But really, when we talk about audiology, we're saying how does hearing and communication impact your relationships, impact how you survive in the world and and especially for kids. And we have tons and wonderful listeners who are parents. And you know, you want to give your kids everything you can. You want to advocate for them. So welcome to the show. I'm so, so excited today to introduce you to Margot Hellman, who is a clinical social worker and therapist. And she has a very interesting story to share. We have a little bit of a theme going on in the last couple episodes where uh, people have reached out to me. They want to share their personal stories with hearing loss or audiology or communication. And there's a surprise. So I'm excited to introduce Margo. Welcome to the show. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, thanks. Thanks for having me. First of all, it's so cool what you do. It's it's a great, it's so important. So Thank I'm you. really happy to be here. Yeah. It's truly so, a labor of love and a mission from my heart. It's fun. Yeah, I want to hear more actually about how you got into it. Maybe I'll talk to you later. Because <laughs> your listeners probably know all that already. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so I'm Margo, as you said, Margo Hellman, and I'm a clinical social worker and therapist. And uh, I work with people here in Jerusalem or online, coping with all of the things that normal, difficult things about life. So anxiety, difficult relationships, illness and loss. That's my thing. And I'm, I'm also passionate about mindful listening. And so maybe I'll tell you about a little bit about that. Like a lot of us have practices where we self-soothe and we can get ourselves really calm. You know, so maybe some of us meditate or do yoga or do little inner things too. But let's say we're meditating or doing yoga. We get off the cushion, we get off the mat, we walk into the living room or the kitchen where, the, where all the action is, and then we can lose it at the people who are most important to us. And it's normal, obviously, but sometimes Especially when we know we can, we can, we're good at soothing ourselves in other situations. It can feel horrible, and it can just ruin our day and get us off, get us off track. Do so you I know have... that people like yell at their loved ones? <laughs> <laughs> Is that something yeah. that happens? What? It does, it does Lila. You know, I can see you're very innocent about this. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. We either we yell or we just get terribly upset, and it throws us off so much. And it's both fascinating to me, and also I, I just. Really, I want to make, I want to create a movement. If, if you want the truth, I want to create a movement of bringing our inner practice to those moments with the people we love the most. That's where we need it. So I've, I've come up with some little tools and little ways of doing that. And yeah, I love it. Oh, that. wow. I, I really resonate with that. I want to hear lots more about that. Because one of the things we talk a lot about is advocating and my method called the FIG method. People have have heard about. I'll link some in the show notes about it. But basically, it's about how do you take all that advocating energy and take it also to random people in the parking lot who just say the rudest thing to your kid? Like, you know, you come in and you have this advocacy hat, but you actually have to wear it all the time when you're, you know, a parent to a child with extra needs. So I said, we all have special needs, right? Exactly. So I'd love to hear how we can do that switch. Like, when you're in the flow, in the zone, you're taken care of, you're taking care of yourself, things are good, but then things get rocky. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the first thing is just to notice it. 
to notice it. And I guess I remember a moment when I realized I need to be able to self-soothe when I'm talking to my husband or to kids, you know, or my, when my husband and kids are talking to me. <laughs> I have to be able to bring those tools. And everyone has their own tools, but just first to notice that we need them there. So if your tools include mindfulness, which is connecting to here and now, and through our through your senses, right? Through through vision, through hearing, through body sensation and touch and maybe taste, maybe smell, then to pay attention that when you're listening to someone, you're not in the present at all. And often, if, if especially if you're upset, right? And you can get back there. It's not hard, it's not it's not complicated to get back there by just looking up. Look up and look around you and notice where you are. Mm-hmm. And you know, what I like I it's really important to me when I talk about dealing with difficult feelings or difficult reactions that we're not trying to shut off those difficult feelings because that can make you nuts, right? Try, you know, the feelings, the nature of feelings is that they change, but if we're struggling against them, then, you know, if we're pushing hard against the feeling, then we're actually increasing the contact with it. So not to, not, not to try to shut up that feeling, but to add something else to so like to notice where you are and that right now everything is fine and 99% of our moments I love the uh mindfulness anchor I guess you can call it just noticing your feet on the floor making contact or like mm-hmm. noticing your feet inside your shoes I don't know I probably heard that once in a in a class or a recording and that really stuck with me often I think about how I'm like literally floating in my mind but at all times, my feet are actually connected to the earth, mm-hmm. to the floor, even though I live on the fourth floor. <laughs> it's connected to the floor that's connected to the earth. <laughs> feet on the floor. That's a great one because it comes from something that is meaningful to you. You have a little bit of a story about it. You know, like you feel like you're floating, but you're not. You're on the floor. You're connected to the earth. And so it's a great resource for you. It's a great, it's like integrated with, with you. So what can you share with our listeners for, for them to have a practical tool that they could use, you know, when they're stressed out? It's good to just go through the senses or whichever sense or pick one sense that's, you, can, you know, there's so many different ways to do it. But so let's say two different options. You can pick one sense, like what you see. And just look up and notice what you see around you. And even you could find something that you like to look at. You know, in all this, it sounds like, wait, I'm in the middle of something. How can I, how can I, you know, I can't pay attention to something else. I'm doing something. But it can be one moment of just looking up and noticing like there's this beautiful plant, a little plant that someone gave me right across the room from me. And just looking up and noticing and really, and I see it every day, right? But just focusing on it and I'm noticing a little bit more, like I'm noticing one leaf that's kind of curly and it's got dark green in the middle and light green on the outside and seeing it in a way that I don't usually see it because mm-hmm. I'm bringing my attention to it. And that interrupts the in my mind. So picking a sense, like it could be body sensation speaks most to you or it could be vision or it could be sounds and just connecting to what's going on here and now through that yeah. sense. That's what, mind, that's what mindfulness is, really. It's connecting to here and now through the senses. So speaking of hearing, would yeah. you share with us your experience with audiology? And you have a good story to, t- to tell me. I'm excited to hear it. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, I, I'm happy to do that. It's funny because uh, uh, I've never been on, I've never been <laughs> the focus of attention in the, because of this. It's funny. 
One thing I want to say, so I have a story of hearing loss. And what's interesting is um, what I was saying earlier about the importance of mindful listening and the importance of being able to listen completely comes from my hearing loss, which is, so that's, I'll, I'll get to that too. So what happened was, I'll, I'll start from the beginning as far as we knew it, which was when I was six years old. And we were standing in the kitchen on Glen Grove Avenue in Toronto. And uh, we were talking on the phone. Now I'm older than you, so I don't know. When you grew up, <laughs> there was this wall phone with a long cord, you know, and a dial. I'm sure you remember them. We were all on the phone talking to my grandmother, my bubby, what we called my grandmother, uh, who lived, you know, not far away. It wasn't a long distance call. We were just saying hello to my grandmother. I don't know whether it was a special day or what. So I'm six years old and someone handed me the phone. Also, something that was different about those days a long time ago, it was actually 50 years ago, if you want to know, um, was that I was maybe just starting to use the phone at that age, uh-huh. <laughs> which is a big change. I, it seems to me that that might have been the case, otherwise we would have known this already. So they handed me the phone, and they handed it to my left ear. And I said, wait a minute, Bubby, that's my bad ear. And that's the first anyone knew that I am deaf in one ear. And my, my, my grandmother freaked out because <laughs> that was her nature to, to like nervous about things. Uh, and I don't really remember very much about it. I remember that happening. And then mostly I remember the stories. So, and then, you know, we went to get it checked out and we figured out that it was probably because I had a very, very high fever when I was a one-year-old and they gave me phenobarb. So I think maybe... You, there's conflicting opinions. I've heard someone told me that it was just because of the fever. But when we went to a pediatrician with my son and I told him that, he said, no, you, you can't get deafness in one ear because of the fever. So then someone said, well, it was because of the phenobarb. Who knows? What hmm. do you know? I mean, again, it's, it's difficult to have all the information from was so many years ago. But is there anyone else in the family who has this, even like extended cousins or anyone? Because that would be interesting. What I find so fascinating about your story and your experience is that you, it was just part of what your experience was. And you were able to put language to that as a six-year-old. And it just, it was the situation. It was your, yeah, this is my bad ear. Like there was no drama about it. It seems. There was no drama about it. And in fact, there was never any drama about it, which was great. Hmm. So I was not a really confident kid, uh, but it had nothing to do with that. And I was never shy about telling people, oh, I need to walk on this side, you know, or just without even telling people, just gravitating to the correct side of people so that I would hear them. But do you Uh, have hearing in that ear, in the left ear? I don't have any hearing in the left ear. It seems to have been nerve damage. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, and, you know, that's often, you know, when you just said, oh, wow, but I don't experience it that way at all. The main problem, <laughs> there's two problems I ever had with this that are like at all competent problems. They're not very big problems at all. One was that in university classrooms, big lecture halls, if someone would call me, I had no idea where they were calling me from. And after feeling really foolish a few times of turning all around, <laughs> trying to figure out where they were calling me from, I made a decision. I'm standing here. If they really want to talk to me, they'll come here. So that, you know, that's one of the two main ways where it was like a problem in my life, which is tiny, right? And the other way was that if I wouldn't tell people that I need to walk on the other side or figure out how to walk on the other side somehow without telling them sometimes, then I would sometimes bang into trees. <laughs> because I'd be walking 
my head turned like this to hear someone and someone would say, it was like my head turned all craned all the way around and someone would say, hey, watch out. And I turn around just in time to bang straight into the tree. So those were the, the two biggest problems I've had. And on the other hand, I think that it has been something that has affected me for the good, not in ways that I would necessarily know about, but looking back, I think it really affected me for the good. So one, one thing that I was happy about as a little girl was that I totally milked it. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes, you know, like I'd be somewhere and my mom would call me that I had to do something. It's like, oh, I didn't hear you completely on purpose. So that, you know, that was fun. Um, but so sometimes your children's you- a behavior is the situation and not their hearing loss. You have to keep an eye on that. Yeah, of course. I mean, right. A child with a hearing loss is a child. So they're, they're going to be, they're, they're yeah. going to be, you know, as much as they're kind of mischief makers, they'll be mischief makers. You know, I believe that my hearing loss made me a really good listener and it developed kind of naturally over the years. And I think hearing loss also gave me a love of mindfulness. So when I first discovered mindfulness, it was something that was kind of familiar to me in a way, or, or I, I knew I loved it because I had to really attend to people in order to hear them. You know, so if I'm, and, and my whole life is about listening, you know, I'm a therapist. <laughs> so, uh, and I sing also, I love to sing. So there's all these things that are important to me that have to do with, that are somehow connected. You know, I didn't always know it was connected, but they're connected. I think, you know, I really believe in that actually, that we are, each of us, this incredible mixture of strengths, wonderful strengths, and sometimes quite difficult, even terrible challenges. And that's who we are. And, and, and knowing ourselves and accepting ourselves, that, that mix of who we are, that's how we can go out and make a life for ourselves, make a good life. So that certainly happened with me, you know. Yeah, you have a lot in common with uh, another guest we had on the show, Jacqueline, who's also a musician, a singer, and she also has a unilateral hearing loss in one one ear. I I'm finding the term huh. that's come to my mind is this expression where people say they suffer from hearing loss, and it was Michelle who's an audiologist on Instagram, Mama Who Hears, who said, you know, that the suffering from the hearing loss is separate from the hearing loss. Those are two separate experiences, Mm. two separate things. And uh, there's a lot of factors that go into which way it's going to go. You know, what support you have, what resources you have, what everyone experiences it differently. But I find it really interesting that you see this as, you know, oh, I had to attend more and I, and I'm good at listening instead of the story of I had to work so hard and everything is so exhausting to listen because that's other people's experience of, you know, unilateral hearing loss. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. Mm -hmm. I think that's true in general, things that are difficult as opposed to suffering or even Mm -hmm. pain as opposed to suffering, you know, challenges and even pain are seem to be part of the package, but we're the ones that turn things into suffering. Partly when through fighting what is, which is, I think, part of the gift of mindfulness of teaching us how to be with what is. You know, both, both in noting the beauty of what is in the present moment, but also in noticing that when we're in the present moment, when we connect that way, all we have to deal with is the present moment. You know, we have this 
illusion that we need to figure out so much ahead of time and we can't, you know, so worry is all about trying to control things that we can't touch because they're in the future. We can't get there. Wow. But if we remind ourselves, all we have to deal, really all I have to deal with is the present moment and any bits of specific planning that I might need to do, but they're usually quite small compared to like this load of worry that we have. So I love what, what you were saying before that the suffering of hearing losses it's not about the hearing loss itself. It's about comparing it to what we think it should be, all that stuff. Yeah. I'm curious to know, so you said your grandmother, she got nervous and then you went and got tested and you, you know, you got the official diagnosis. So what happened after that? Was there any intervention offered or like classroom accommodations, things like that? It was very low key. So it could be that my parents talked to teachers. I remember I always you know, one needed a, a seat up front and also on the left of the classroom, you know, so that my, the teacher would be on my right. Um, but it wasn't like a big deal. Um, and that, that worked really well. I mean, I guess this, it depends what kind of system you're dealing with. And sometimes you have to make a big deal, unfortunately. Right. But yeah. Uh, yeah. So I, I would go every year for a hearing test because there's a hundred percent hearing. Loss, so I couldn't benefit from a hearing aid. Mm-hmm cochlear implants weren't a thing back then. I don't know Mm -hmm. if if that would have been something that they would have. Do people now consider cochlear implants for for unilateral hearing loss? Yes, yes, yes. This has really been a change just over the last decade that's Uh showing that if if that implantation happens early, you know, during that critical language acquisition period, the first three years, then children have really good outcomes. Many, many children have very good outcomes when there's one good ear and a cochlear implant in the other ear. Um, but if, you're, if your ear hasn't heard in all these years and that nerve never got stimulated, it would be a different case, you know, different expectations for someone to get a cochlear right. implant at that stage. But Jacqueline, who was on the show, uh, she had a traumatic brain injury in a car accident. That's how she lost her hearing. And she got a cochlear implant. So she was hearing all the years, then lost the hearing and now has a cochlear implant. It's an amazing technology for, you know, for the cases where it is appropriate. When I, when I, when it first became known cochlear implants, people were saying, you should do it. You should do it. And I didn't, I wasn't thinking about this, you know, the fact that I'd done without hearing loss in that ear for decades. But for me, it was like, my life is fine. And why do I want them to go in, you know, this invasive thing? If my life is just fine. There you go. Like someone with the exact same hearing loss in one year, good hearing in the other, might say that they have such a hard time, that they really want to try anything that can help them. Um, there, have you heard of the cross hearing aid, which is basically putting a little microphone on the left side and then it transmits to your right ear just so that you don't have to actually crane your head. So that might be an option if you're interested. But again, <laughs> those are some of the... Yeah. Options that are out there. Mm -hmm. That'd be interesting. Yeah. My favorite story about someone who loved their cross so much was a veteran that I worked with in the veterans hospital in Brooklyn and he played in a band. So he was always on the, you know, the side where his ear could hear the rest of the players. And then when he got the cross hearing aid, he could be anywhere on the stage. And he was very happy about that, that he didn't have to be limited in the one spot. He could be in the middle. He could be on the other side. (laughs) So it's really very situation dependent. 
Yeah. But if you're a therapist, you're usually talking to people one-on-one in quiet rooms, like your situations are different than say right. a classroom teacher or a university student. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, even when I, I work with families, sometimes I don't, I don't experience a, like that my hearing loss gives, you know, makes it problematic for me when, when I'm doing therapy in, in larger groups either. I also lead groups. Um, mm-hmm. I think that it's given me the, naturalness of saying I didn't hear what you said which is really important in therapy or I didn't get what you said I didn't understand what you said which is something you know again like that aspect of listening and making sure that we are understanding and checking to see if we understand the other person listening actually I think has very little to do with the ears absolutely hearing itself happens in the brain so our ears are the tool the sensory organ that picks it up but all of that happens up in the brain and then further is then when you add your understanding and your context and your language, like, do you even know that vocabulary word? Do you understand what they're talking about? Yeah, that's so important. So then you really focus on mindful listening and how, when we are in a conversation, we're not thinking about the next thing we want to say or how to answer them back. (laughs) What's the good comeback? We actually just listen to what they're saying. Right. How do we do that? Help. (laughs) Yeah, so so it's a real, it's a practice, right? We were talking before about practices that we use for self-soothing, like, you know, meditation, mindfulness, yoga, or any little thing that you do. It's a practice. And so mindful listening is all, also a practice. And it is what you just mentioned of, instead of saying not planning what we're going to say, I like to think of it as noticing when we're planning what we're going to say and, re, and, and coming back. Mm. Um, and we have all kinds of things that happen when we're listening. Part of the reason it's so difficult to listen is because when we're hearing someone, especially in those moments of conflict, that person's saying things that are difficult for us to hear, or they're saying things that we really disagree with and we think it's really important that, that they get that they're wrong, right? Yeah. And later we may think that's true or we may not. Maybe it is true even. The thing is when someone is heated up, they can't hear us anyway. There's no way we, you can convince someone that they're wrong if they're angry or, or intense past a certain point, the best thing you can do when someone is upset is be mindful of your own reactions. Be mindful of everything in that moment. You know, what we do when we're mindful of everything in the moment is we kind of, the attention moves from like, like I was talking about the plant over there, the person's face, noticing that my shoulders are all tense, noticing a thought and feeling. It's, it's a whole array of different stimuli, different things that I'm experiencing in the moment and going back over and over again to listening. So if I can hold on to myself in a moment of conflict. I, I can choose my response and feel better about my response and then create a better outcome. Absolutely. And it is a practice. What I love about it is, one of the things I love about it is that it takes relationship conflict or those difficult moments that we have with people who are most important to us and turns it into a key part of our inner practice. There's something also very spiritual about it. It turns it into a key part of our spiritual practice. And usually we often, we often see these things as separate. Like the people in my life are getting in my way of being as calm as I can. And you know, that they are actually more important than that, right? So... Yeah. That's really interesting to really integrate it into your everyday life, into those situations that you're in all the time, especially people who are in quarantine or stay at home or kids home now for remote schooling. 
Like there's just yeah. so much more contact that we have as opposed to like, see you at the end of the day. And then like, you're, there's a lot more interactions throughout the day. At least that's what our experience has been. <laughs> Absolutely. And to see you at the end of the day, when we have that time where we have more choice about how to spend our time, then we go back to our kids or our spouses refreshed. And when we're home all day together, it can be really, really difficult for a lot of us. It can, it can really be painfully difficult. So finding ways that you can take, like even a, I think of it sometimes as a mini vacation, right? Of taking a, just taking a breath and noticing your breath, you know, that mini, it's super important. Yeah. And especially special, special needs kids, then there's even more of a, there's even more of a, did you say you're doing that right now? Yeah, I was just breathing as you talk about it. Everyone do that as you listen to this podcast. Take a deep breath. <laughs> like that. Yeah. It's really restorative. Even just one breath, it really brings you the most um, impactful and really long-lasting lessons that I learned from being in therapy, highly recommended, is that I actually experienced what you were talking about that the conversation just goes much slower because there necessarily isn't a back and forth of two people interacting in an equal sense. It's like the other person, the therapist is literally there to hear what you're saying and has no invested interest in the conversation for themselves. So all of a sudden you get to hear for yourself what you're saying and then process how that sounds and process you know, it's very analytical uh, where you're analyzing what you thought, what you said without the other person's volley, you know, as a regular conversation in real life, sort of. <laughs> and I, I remember that in the beginning, I would be like, why isn't the person giving their opinion, their response, their answer? Like, this is a very different version of conversation. So I'm a big fan of therapy. It has definitely helped me learn what are those like you know, the zhuzh you said, <laughs> the gears turning right. and how sometimes that like goes so fast, you can't even hear it yourself until you slow down. And then right. the therapist yeah. is kind of a mirror to that. I really appreciate what you do. Thank you. So many of the listeners on the show are also providers, audiologists, speech therapists, teachers of the deaf. And we always you know, try to also give the other side. And that's kind of the point of the podcast too, is that we all come together and have these conversations as a group. And it's not like provider versus patient. You know, we're all people, the audiologists and the teachers on one side, they are asking themselves a lot of the questions that parents are asking themselves, how to do the best by the kids and how to be supportive and give them the best environment um, and take care of them and ourselves. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little to those are listeners who are the providers, how we can incorporate this into our healthcare practices. I think in a macro sense, the main thing is that we, each of us as human beings need to do our own work, you know, and figure out what is, what helps us figure out what, what our sources of inspiration and, and, and strength are. So I'm not exactly, I don't think, I'm not exactly sure if that speaks to your question. I think that to know, you know, if we find ourselves, reacting in certain ways to understand what is getting to us and to understand what we need in order to nourish ourselves and to learn skills to help ourselves. 
That's so important. So powerful. And, you know, I think there's this concept of like self-care that gets over applied, which is like any problem you have, well, you didn't, you know, take a bubble bath for 45 minutes. Like that's not in everyone's, in everyone's ability in life and resources to do that, especially parents mm-hmm. who have, I mean, all parents again, but parents with children that have special needs have very limited time resources. And so it's kind of like the, the burden of the care is now your, your problem also. We, we need care from others. We need support from our community, from family, yeah. from, you know, the schools and, our, and, and the providers, all the therapists and things like that. And I, right. wonder your, I wonder your take on that, on the self-care versus getting support from elsewhere. Yeah. Well, you know, I had a client once, or actually she was a, a therapy student, a, a supervisee once, who said to me sometimes she thought therapy was against uh, her social action sense because therapy is all about getting used to things that maybe you shouldn't have to get used to because maybe there should be social change. So I hear that and I hear that a little bit in what you're saying. Uh, And there is an aspect of truth to that. So the whole self-care Bible of everything is about self-care. On the one hand, absolutely, if it gives you permission, it should be about your permission as much as possible in your life situation to do what you need to do, to say no, for instance, or, or, or take 45 minute bubble bath if you can, and it's really important to you. Yeah. But not, you know, self-care should not be a whip that we then use against ourselves. We turn so many things or or society, or we, we do it together, turn so many things into something that we use against ourselves. And yeah, so it's true. There's a lot of things that should be as part of our world, certain basic resources and support that aren't there changing those, would that be better than self-care? Sure. I think we need them both. (laughs) Both. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It reminds me also of the conversation we're having all over about screen time and remote schooling, so many screens. And it's like the screen is not the enemy. It's kind of what you do with the screen. There's, you know, mindless scrolling and there's the amazing interaction and support and community that happens on social things like that. So everything is a tool and uh, I'm excited to hear about the tools that you wanted to share with our audience. Yeah. Yeah. So I have this one really, that's been an amazing tool in my life that I decided to write up and give it away. And it's called the soft belly method for staying calm during conflict. And it's kind of a foundation. It's a very simple three-step practice that's basically looking up, noticing your breath, and then doing this attention focus that's about softening the belly. And it really has a physiological effect. And it also kind of takes our attention back into ourselves rather than being out all over the place. So uh, I have a link if people want to get that. And that is uh, bookme, B-O-O-K-M-E dot name, as in what's your name, N-A-M-E slash Margot Hellman, which is M-A-R-G-O-H-E-L-M-A-N. And it's there for you for free. And it's been really wonderful thing in my life. And I hope it's helpful for people. Thank you so much, Margot, for sharing that with our audience. There will be a link in the show notes at allaboutaudiology.com. 
as well as a full transcript of today's conversation, as always. Thank you so much for being on the show. Any last words? It's a pleasure. I, I love what you do. Yeah, thanks so much. Oh, and are you on social media? I'm on Facebook, Margot Hellman, MSW. And I actually have a group, a Facebook group too, called uh, Calm During Conflict, if you're interested, if people are interested more in that. Awesome. Yeah. We'll link that as well. Thank you so much. 